Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would bless this time of the preaching of your word. Father, your word is powerful. Father, it is alive and active. And it has the ability to do what my words cannot do. And that is to reach down into our hearts and souls and convict us, challenge us, lead us, encourage us, grow us. Ultimately, Father, Your Word has the power to change us. And Father, we are a people that are in need of change. Father, whether there's someone here today who has never experienced that change of going from dead in their sins to alive in Christ, having every sin washed away, Father, Your Word is powerful to do that in their life today. And I pray that You, through Your Word, would do that, would resurrect them to new life. Father, even once we've trusted in Christ and we've received that new life, Lord, we need to change Every day, Father, we have so much to learn and so many areas of our life to to grow, to look more and more like Jesus. And so all of us stand in a place where we need to be changed. Father, Your Word has the power to do that. Father, we will just humble our hearts. Father, receive Your Word as it is. Welcome it into our lives. And desire and ask for You through Your Spirit to do whatever it is You want to do in us through Your Word. Father, you'll be honored. We'll be changed. Father, you'll be glorified in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. As you're turning to 1 Peter, I want to tell you something. It is God's will... For you to suffer. It is God's will for you to suffer. No, that's not a true false, and I'm expecting you to shake your head and say, Oh, no, Zach, that's false. There are some pastors who would say that. There are some Christians who would say, What I just said is wrong. They would say, certainly God's will is not for us to suffer. I mean, that's why he sent Jesus, so that we wouldn't have to suffer. See, that's not the whole truth. And a half truth is just a lie. It is God's will, Christian, for you to suffer. That's a statement that's not going to draw a big crowd. The opposite Will. And we can look at churches, and I use that term very loosely, where that's the message that is proclaimed, that it's not God's will for you to suffer. And guess what happens? Oftentimes they're able to draw a big crowd. But that false message is not a message that will prepare you, Christian, To live out the life that God has called you to live and remain faithful to the end. So let me say that statement one more time. It is God's will for you to suffer. 
I want to read a verse from 1 Thessalonians before we get to our passage in 1 Peter. And it says this. That the gospel of Christ can establish and exhort you in your faith through those who are preaching. I'm paraphrasing here. Now I'm quoting. That no one be moved by these afflictions, by these sufferings. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For what? For eternal life? Yes, but that's not what this verse is talking about. We are destined for afflictions. We are destined for suffering. Who does the destining? Ing. Not sure how to say that the right way. Who does it? Who does the planning? Who predestines us for suffering according to this verse? Who is behind it all? No, it's not Satan. He doesn't have that kind of power. It's God. So can't we just leave that to the side? <laughs> Let's talk about the joyful things, Zach. Why, why start out that way? Because knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering for Christ will help us, will encourage us, will strengthen us to remain exiles to the end. I want you to follow along in 1 Peter, and then we'll set a little context and we'll dive into this passage. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As we have just waded through this letter of First Peter, this is, this is one of those letters that if we are thinking that Christianity is some high in the sky, looking at life through rose-colored glasses kind of religion, if we want to use that terminology, that it's that kind of lifestyle. First Peter hits us right between the eyes and tells us that we are exiles in this world. 
We are elect exiles. Peter started his letter out that way. He spent some time in chapter 1 and chapter 2 telling us who we are, that we have been given new life, and that new life calls us to a new way of living, and it calls us to belong to a new group of people. We have a new family. And then he spent the latter part of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4 telling us about ways that we can live on mission as exiles. And those, that, that, that way of living on mission, it centers around these two themes of submission and suffering. And he closed out that section of the letter in chapter 4, verse 11. And he starts a new section here. And what he's going to do from now to the end of the letter is he is going to encourage them, these Christians, to remain faithful, to be exiles to the end. And he's going to give them some ways, some things that will help them stay faithful to the end. Listen, it's hard when we are suffering for the name of Christ to remain faithful to the one who ultimately is the reason for our suffering. It will be much easier to reject that name and live a life of comfort and ease. Now, it's hard in our society for us to wrap our minds around that because we don't really face that much persecution in our society. But I can guarantee you that Christians through the ages have the Christians that Peter was writing to. There are Christians in our world today who are facing persecution. They're facing ridicule and insult on a daily basis and not to make light of that, because what we experience in our society is nothing compared to what some experience in other parts of our world. But that persecution, that that persecution that comes by word of by word of mouth, by insult and and maligning one another and speaking evil against those who are followers of Christ is growing in our society. And so we want to be prepared. And that's why Peter's writing this. But we don't just want to be faithful to the Lord for a little while. We want to be faithful to the end. And so Peter's going to give some reasons as he closes out this letter that, that some, some things that will help us, if we can wrap our minds around them, if we can take them to heart and we can put them into practice, will help us remain exiles to the end. Remember, an exile is someone who doesn't belong. Christian, you don't belong here in this world. You don't belong that Peter's been beating that drum over and over and over. And so I've tried to beat that drum over and over and over to say faithful to the text. We don't belong here, but we do belong to God. We are citizens of heaven. But we will find our play ourselves very out of place in this world when we are living for Jesus. So let me share with you in this passage Five things that will be true of you when you trust in God's sovereignty over your suffering for Christ. So the first thing that Peter's going to tell us as he begins to close out this letter is that if you want to remain faithful to the end, you have to realize that God is sovereign over your suffering for Christ. Now, remember, we're not talking about suffering for doing bad things and getting in trouble for it. We're not talking about suffering just for have like you have a cold or those kinds of ailments that everybody, whether you belong to God or not, you endure those kinds of go through those kinds of suffering. We're talking about suffering for righteousness sake. That is suffering that comes to you only because you love Jesus, have been saved by him and are living for him. 
And we must understand that God is in control. He is sovereign over that suffering. Let me share with you these five things that will be true of you when you trust in God's sovereignty over your suffering for Christ. The first thing is this. When you trust in God's sovereignty, that is his control over your suffering for Christ, you will respond with calmness rather than surprise. You will respond with calmness rather than surprise. How many of you like to be surprised? Do you like surprises? Some people like them. Some people don't really like to be surprised. I have some daughters. I have a lot of daughters, matter of fact. But I have some daughters that they like surprises. They love to be surprised. They love it when I say, I have a surprise for you. I have a surprise for you. Well, since I keep adding to the number of daughters that I have, we have to make room for them. And we don't have room right now to spread out. We have to go up. And what I mean by that is there's nowhere for another bed on the floor space, so we got to start stacking them. Well, there's not a lot of room for your traditional twin-size bunk beds in, in, uh, in their bedroom, and so we have to customize. And so we made some, so me and my dad made some toddler-size bunk beds. I think he was showing y'all, some of y'all pictures of them this morning. And, and so uh, they knew that they were getting these new beds, my two older uh, daughters. And, and, uh, and, and so we had told them, and uh, they had even seen us uh, working on them and building them. And they weren't at the house when we went to set them up. And, uh, and so I, me and my dad went, and we, we got them all set up. They're in there. They look good. And so uh, then I was going to take my daughters home, and they were going to get to see them. And so I said, guess what? I said, have a surprise for you. And they were like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and then we got, got going down the driveway, and, and my four-year-old said, didn't you say that you had a surprise for us when we got home? I said, I said yeah. And she was like, well, what's this surprise going to be? And I, I just went ahead and told her. I, I just said, I said, well, your surprise is going to be your new bed. And she went, oh, oh. Now, here's the thing. She was super excited to get that new bed. She was. I took a videotape of when they walked in the room and it was like Christmas morning. And, oh, look at this new bed. I mean, they were so excited. But why did she go, oh, when I told her the surprise was her bed? Well, you know what she said next. Well, I already knew that I was getting a bed. (laughs) I already knew that. It wasn't that she wasn't excited to get a new bed. It just, it wasn't a surprise. I kind of already ruined the surprise because... I had already told her and she had already seen us making it. How often do we as Christians act surprised when the world hates us for loving Jesus? How often do we go, I can't believe he said that about Christians? I can't believe they said this about Christians. Do you know how foolish that is? We should take a lesson from my four-year-old. If you already know something is happening and is going to happen, why would you be surprised when it happens? God has told us, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why would we be surprised that a world who hates 
the one that we love hates us as well. And so if we take Peter's letter to heart, we take God's word to heart, then we'll respond with calmness. We'll go, oh, yeah, I expected you to say that. I expected the world to hate me. I'm not going to be shocked and surprised. Now, the times that we really don't like being shocked and surprised is when, we're, when we get scared. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody hides behind the corner and they know we're coming in the room and they jump out and scare us. You know what happens when we're shocked in that moment? What may happen for some of us? We, we, might, we might throw a punch back, right? We might scream in their face. Ah! Or if your reaction is to fight, you, you knock them in the face, right? If that's your action because you didn't know it was coming. But you know what happens when we don't expect the world to hate us? We'll respond in shock. And whenever we respond in shock, we'll scream back at them. We'll throw that punch, whether figuratively or literally, back at them. But when we know that it's coming, because God has already told us that it's coming, we won't be shocked. We won't be surprised. And when we're not surprised, we'll be able to respond the way God, through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, has been calling Christians to respond to unjust suffering all throughout this letter. With love and good deeds. Don't be surprised. God has already told you. And He's doing something with it. This fiery trial. It's coming upon you to test you. God has a purpose for it. He's talked about that purpose in the beginning of this letter when he said in chapter one, verse uh, verse four, that he's bringing us to an inheritance that's undefiled and perishable and fading, kept in heaven for you. In verse five, that we're being guarded through faith for this salvation. But then in verse six, he says in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, what are these trials doing? Verse seven of chapter one. So that the tested, there's that word again, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he calls the testing a fiery trial. Two times in this letter, he uses fire as an imagery for the sufferings for Christ that we go through. Here's what fire does. It purifies. It purifies. It burns up all the bad that's there so that what's left is good. And God is using the sufferings for Christ that we experience for that end to purify us. Don't be surprised that the world hates you because you don't look anything like the world. We no longer belong to this world. We no longer look like this world. God is also purifying us. So don't be surprised. We learned in chapter four, verse four, that the world is surprised when we don't do what they're doing. The world is shocked when we don't join them. Scripture says in the same flood of debauchery, the same flood of sinfulness. They look at us and go, what? I can't believe you're not going to come and do what we're doing. But we shouldn't have the same reaction when they hate us. The world might be surprised at the way we act, but we should not be surprised at the way they act towards us. Not only that, but we follow a master who suffered as well. One writer said this, Christ's suffering, rejection, and execution normalize suffering for the Christian in this world. 
In other words, the normal Christian life. Not the abnormal. I'm not talk, we're not talking about this, this is the person who goes and serves as a missionary in this place where they kill Christians and they, they suffer really bad for it, but only a few Christians are called to do that. No, the normal Christian life is a life lived for the glory of Jesus and at the same time a life that is hated by the watching world. That's the normal Christian life. It was normal for our Savior, and it's normal, should be, for us. God is sovereign over our suffering, so we're not surprised by it. Instead of being surprised, we should rejoice. And that leads us to the second thing that will be true of you when you trust in God's sovereignty over your suffering for Christ, and that's this. You'll rejoice in the present as you look forward to the future. You'll rejoice in the present as you look forward to the future. When we Wrap our minds, begin to wrap our minds around this truth that God is in control of our suffering for Christ. He's over it all. We will rejoice now as we look forward to what is coming in the future. Look at what he says in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, we find these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Don't wait to rejoice. This is a present tense command. Rejoice now when you suffer for the name of Christ. Why? Because His glory is going to be revealed. Two times in this letter, chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 1, verse 13, Peter has, has taken us to the future. And he said that there will be this day, what's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is revealed, you say, hasn't Jesus already been revealed? Yeah, so we celebrate at Christmas time. The first time he was revealed as a little baby. But the next time he's revealed to the earth, he will be as conquering king. Revelation tells us that there is in a, will be in his mouth a sharp sword, sword with which to strike down the nations. By his word, he will judge the peoples of the earth. He is coming back. His glory will be revealed. But for those who belong to him, it will be a day of rejoicing and gladness because our king will be here to take us home. Remember, we don't belong here. And so we're longing for the day when our king comes back to take us to the home in which we rightfully belong. Rightfully, not because we deserve it, but rightfully because God has prepared a place for us there because His Son, Jesus, paid the price for our sins. To all who did receive Him, John says, He gave the right to become children of God. And so we rejoice now because we know that we will rejoice later. I have a sister, a couple of sisters actually, who are expecting a child, uh, each of them, and And uh, one of them has been sick her entire time that she's been pregnant. She's only about eight weeks from her uh, delivery date, due date, but she has just she's just been sick the whole time. And yet, every time I see her, there's still this glow about her in the midst of the sickness and some pain that she's been having, too. There's still this glow about her. Why is that? It's because the temporary suffering that she's enduring for being pregnant is overshadowed by the joy of knowing that she's bearing a child. 
our temporary suffering is overshadowed in this life, Christian, by the joy of knowing what is coming. And what is coming is the glory of Jesus. And we get to participate in that through His shed blood. But it's not only, it's not only because of what is coming, but the suffering itself is evidence that we do belong to Jesus. My sister's suffering is evidence that she is pregnant. Besides the fact that you can just look at her and tell, right? But the suffering itself is evidence that something's going on inside of her. Something unusual is there. It hadn't been there before. And the same is true with us. Our suffering is evidence that we actually do belong to Jesus. And for that, we can rejoice as well. In verse 14, it says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Listen, when you suffer for the name of Christ, it's evident that God's spirit and God's glory rests upon you. Earlier I read from Isaiah chapter 11, and there it says that there's coming this one upon whom the Spirit of God will rest upon. That one is Jesus, and everyone who belongs to Jesus has the Spirit and glory of God resting upon him or her as well. And so when we suffer, it's evidence. We say, hey, that's further evidence that I do belong to Christ. And so I rejoice in my suffering. I'm not surprised by it, but I rejoice in it. The one who is sovereign over our future is sovereign over our present. So we can rejoice in the present as we look forward to the future glory. But, as I hinted at earlier, there's a wrong kind of suffering and there's a right kind of suffering. And Peter gets there next. And he's kind of reminded us of this in a couple of places throughout his letter. You see, it would be tempting to just to say, oh, I'm suffering. I must belong to Jesus. God's being glorified. But what if the suffering that you're experiencing is because you're sinning? And you're being punished. You're suffering as a result, as a result of your wrongdoing. Is that a reason to rejoice and give glory to God? Absolutely not. And so the third thing that will be true of you when you trust in God's sovereignty over your suffering for Christ is that you will resist sin and boldly embrace being a follower of Jesus. You will resist sin and boldly embrace being a follower of Jesus. She's in a temptation, and Peter has warned us of this over and over, the temptation when we suffer for Jesus because we don't look like the world is to start looking like the world. So we have to be reminded over and over and over and over, don't look like the world. You are in exile. You don't belong to the world, so you need to look different. We've been called to pursue holiness because He who called us is holy. We've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers by the precious blood of Christ in chapter 1. We're not who we once were. We belong to Him. We're founded upon Him as our cornerstone, and we, like living stones, are being built upon Him. It's a holy priesthood. And so we're to be living holy lives. And we have to be reminded of that. Look at what he says in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Well, that's an interesting list. A murderer, that's pretty, pretty extreme. A thief, that's pretty extreme. An evildoer, ooh, that sounds bad. A meddler? Why can't I get in other people's business? Come on, God. Come on. 
Look at the, the extremes here. From murdering to meddling, we are not to participate in sin. We are to live righteous and holy lives even as we suffer for living righteous and holy lives. We are to suffer for righteousness sake. A Christian is someone who doesn't practice sin, but instead boldly does what is right for the glory of God. So right after he says, don't participate in these things, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Pause for just a moment. Notice, notice how he defines Christian here. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler, and the list could go on all these sins. But no one suffer for, for having a sinful lifestyle. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, see what he's implying there? That Christians don't practice sin. And so if your life is full of sin today, if it doesn't look any different than the world around you, it would be wise of you to stop and say, am I a Christian? Because Peter just defined a Christian as someone who doesn't participate in those things. Doesn't mean that a Christian is perfect. But a Christian isn't one who lives in this practice of sin without regard for the consequences, without regard for the name of Christ. And instead of sinning, we are to be willing to let God be glorified in our lives, not privately, but in a way that other people can see. Let us not be ashamed Christian, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe that He is the Son of God. I believe that He is the One who died on the cross for my sins and for your sins. I believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that no one gets to the Father except through Jesus. I believe that if you believe anything else, you will not go to heaven. You will go to hell. I believe that. I believe that Jesus is able to save you just like He saved me. I'm not ashamed of the name of Christ. I believe that He's called me to live my life in a way that brings Him honor and glory. Even if people revile me. Even if I look different than those that I work with or those that I go to school with. Or if I look different than those in my neighborhood or those in my community or those in my country. I, even if I look completely different and even if they are shocked. And because they are shocked that I don't join them, they malign me. As chapter 4 verse 4 says, even if they make fun of me, I will live for Christ and I will do it in a way where I'm pouring love into other people's lives, not hate. I'm not ashamed is what Peter's saying. But the glory of God shine forth from our lives, Christians. We're not to be a light that's hidden under a bush, but we are to be a city on a hill that radiates the glory of the gospel. Are people going to hate it? Yes, they will. But let them hate it because they hate Jesus, not because we are acting as evil doers. For instance, if you're getting called names on social media, because you're calling other people names in the name of Christ, you're not suffering as a Christian, you're suffering as an evildoer, and don't expect any blessing from God for that. But if you're pouring love into people's hearts and lives, not compromising the truth, but showering people with love and good deeds, and you suffer for it, this verse says you are blessed, and so 
we can resist sin. We can boldly embrace being a follower of Jesus. Because God is sovereign over our suffering. We don't let our suffering deter us from living for Christ. But rather we live for Christ all the more so that this sovereign God will be glorified in our lives. Fourth, when you trust in God's sovereignty over your suffering for Christ, you will remember that God's wrath awaits those who are not God's people. See, one of the challenges that comes when we're trying to live for Jesus is looking at those around us who aren't living for Jesus and looking at how good their lives are. Right. I mean, this is the cry of the psalmist over and over and over again. Read the Psalms. And the psalmist is crying out, God, how come the wicked are prospering? I mean, you said that the wicked would perish and that those who 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 are righteous would flourish. They would be like a tree that is planted by streams of water that produce in season and out of season. The wicked would be like the chaff uh, that are blown away by the wind. And yet when I look around, it seems like the wicked are prospering. I mean, it seems like, man, the, the, the people who have all the money, man, they're not living for the Lord. The people who have the nice, the big old houses, they're not living for the Lord. The people who have the fame and the popularity, they're not living for the Lord. So, God, I mean, this kind of seems like you're telling us the opposite of what is true. seems like the blessing is coming to the wicked. It seems like I'm being punished. I'm the one that's getting made fun of for living for Christ. And God says, remember what's coming for the wicked. Remember what's coming for the wicked, for those who are not righteous. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Stop there. What in the world is that talking about? Well, the household of God isn't this building or any other church building. The household of God is the people of God. We've already been told that in chapter 2. It says, as you come to him, a living stone, it calls Jesus a living stone, who's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who is this household? It's Christians. It's the elect exiles. It's the people who are suffering for Christ. We are the house. Judgment is coming to the household of God. That's what it says. So I didn't think I was going to be judged. I mean, I thought I was going to escape the judgment of God. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 14 for just a moment. Romans chapter 14 says this, uh, verse 10 and following. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why are you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all, he's talking to Christians, stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us, he's talking to Christians, will give an account of himself to God. So here's what Peter's doing. He's saying, right now, we are, in a way, experiencing the judgment of God. But the judgment for Christians is a judgment that purifies. We've already seen that. The judgment that we're experiencing is this, this, where God is, is calling into question the things that we're doing with the life that He's given us. And as He does that, and we find that there are areas in our life where we're not following Him, we repent of those. He's purifying us. It's this purifying process. And so while we as Christians are judged, it's not the same kind of judgment. Because notice what he says next. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Here's what he's saying. Listen, if we pass through the fires of God's judgment and we belong to God, he's saved us. He's given us a new life. That means we're going to come out on the other side 
What's going to happen to the people that don't belong to him? Yeah, their life may look great now, but one day they're going to pass through the judgment of God. Look at verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Eternal punishment. The eternal judgment of God. They're separated from Him forever. So he says, Christian, don't lose heart when you see the wicked flourish right now. Because one day, one day what's coming for them is the eternal judgment of God. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You say, what's the difference between these two? Notice this phrase at the end of verse 17. The outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. That's the difference. You see, the righteous and the wicked aren't separated because of what they do. The righteous and the wicked are separated because of who they serve. Say, what makes me righteous? How can I stand up here and claim that I'm a part of the righteous? That one day I will escape the the judgment and wrath of God? It's the blood of Jesus. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the difference Jesus says one day He's going to separate the peoples of the earth like like someone would separate the sheep from the goats. There's only two categories. And on one side are the sheep, and on one side are the goats. And the sheep, He'll say, welcome into my presence. The goats, He says, away from me, depart from me. And He'll cast them into the lake of fire that is prepared for Satan and his demons. Jesus said that. You can look it up in the Gospels. The difference is the gospel. The difference isn't you. The difference is Jesus. Whether or not you've placed your faith and trust in Him. And so have you? Are you following Christ? Is He your Master? Are you a servant of Jesus today? Don't be jealous of the wicked Christian. God is sovereign over the final judgment. He is sovereign over the wicked And our present suffering is nothing compared to the wrath that awaits those who don't belong to God. What about those who are God's people? I better get to truth number five quickly. My voice is gone. Oh, this this is good. Number five. When you trust in God's sovereignty over your suffering for Christ, you will rest in God's faithfulness toward those who are God's people. You will rest in God's faithfulness toward those who are God's people. Notice how he finishes this passage. Therefore, 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 in light of God's sovereignty over all of this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, don't miss that. It's God's will that we suffer for the name of Christ. Therefore, let us entrust our souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. 
me say a couple of things about this and we're going to close. Number one is this. Please don't give Satan credit for God's work. It's God's will that we suffer for the name of Christ. We give Satan far too much credit. Oh, well, Satan did this and Satan did that. And that's why I'm having a bad day. Maybe you're having a bad day because God willed you to have a bad day. So that you'll trust him more and more so that you won't get comfortable in this life. So that you will get to experience the joy of suffering for the name of Christ. Maybe God didn't want to hold out on you the blessing of suffering for Christ. And so he sent that suffering your way so that you could experience the joy of suffering for Jesus. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you've been washed by the blood of Christ, you will consider suffering for Jesus a joy. There will be no greater joy in all of life than that. Don't give Satan credit for God's work. But notice how he describes God. He is the creator. Listen, the creator is sovereign over all. If he made it all, he's over it all. But not only is he that powerful, he is that good. That he can be called a faithful God. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We trust that God is faithful to his promise. So what was his promise? That he has prepared for us an inheritance. Undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power, through our faith, are being guarded for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Ready. And so we entrust our souls to this one who is faithful. But we don't just sit around and do nothing. We keep doing good. The way that you and I trust God on a daily basis is by living our lives doing good works. Filling our lives with good towards others, whether they love us or hate us. We do good. We don't repay evil for evil. We don't repay reviling for reviling. But we keep Doing good. Keep doing good. Keep doing good. Because God is sovereign. And He is faithful. So how do we remain exiles to the end? How, Christian, do you do that? Listen, it can be hard sometimes. It can be hard How do you remain exiles to the end? We have to know that God is sovereign over the suffering. Because if we don't, we'll question Him instead of trusting Him. Can we just close with the best example in all the world of someone who was willing in the midst of suffering to entrust themselves to God? who didn't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. It's Jesus. And Peter has already taken us there. Chapter 2. Notice these words. 
For to this you have been called. To what? Suffering for doing good. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you, Christian, might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. There's Him resisting sin and living boldly for the glory of God. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. He wasn't shocked by it. He didn't throw back a punch. He knew it was coming. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the invitation for you today, Christian, the invitation for me is for us. As long as God gives you breath in your lungs to keep entrusting yourself to a sovereign, faithful creator who is sovereign even over your suffering. For righteousness sake. And if we'll see God as who He is. Sovereign over our suffering. We will remain faithful. Faithful exiles to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, would you be honored and glorified in our response to your word today? Lord, you've told us what to expect. If we live boldly for you, we will suffer for it. Help us to rejoice. Help us to trust You and Your sovereignty over our suffering so that we can remain as exiles to the end. Not only, not only so that when we get to the end, we can find You saying, well done, My good and faithful servant. But so that when we get to that day, we'll be able to look to our right and to our left And see those who are there with us because we continue living on mission for you. Because through our our perseverance to live as exiles and continue doing good, others saw that and were drawn into a relationship with Jesus through our witness and faithfulness to Christ. Father, help us to rejoice in suffering for Jesus. Because it's Your will. Not simply that we would rejoice, but that we would suffer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.